Now, beloved listeners, what does the word witch conjure up for you? Uh, Well, Macbeth's weird sisters, Salem, or the thousands of uh, poor women in the Middle Ages who were burnt for being witches. We uh, might think that these brutal images belong to centuries gone by, but my next guest, Marion Gibson, says, sadly that the persecution of witches is not something we've left in the distant past. Now, Marion's been engaged in the scholarly study of witch trials for almost 30 years now. She's a a witch historian and, uh, well, a witch historian extraordinaire and has a rather wonderful job title. Let me read this to you. Professor of Renaissance and Magical Literature at the University of Exeter. Now, Marion's uh, written a number of books on the history of witchcraft. In fact, uh, we were digging through the LNL archives recently and we found an interview she did with us back in 1999. And so I'm delighted that Marion's back on the blower from Exeter to talk about her new book, Witchcraft, A History in 13 Trials. Marion, welcome back. It's been a while. You've uh, devoted your career to an extensive witch hunt in the most uh, positive sense of the word. You've examined witch trials in England and Scotland, in fact, around the world. What originally piqued your interest? Well, it's lovely to be back, and thank you for inviting me back. I got interested in witch trials because I really wanted to hear the voices of women. It's as simple as that, actually. When I was a student, I was given a kind of early newspaper account, like an Elizabethan newspaper, and it was an account of a witch trial. And I sat down and started reading this. And before long, I was just enthralled because I thought, what we're hearing from here, these are the women that we don't hear from in history, actually. They're people who are being accused of witchcraft themselves or they're accusing other women in their communities. But they're almost all illiterate villagers. They, they live in tiny rural communities. You know, they've never been to school. They absolutely cannot write. We don't hear their voices in history because their words were not recorded. And as they confessed to witchcraft, or they told witchcraft stories about their neighbours, they were telling us all this stuff about their ordinary lives, you know, how they they spun and dyed cloth, or how they got people to weed their fields, or, you know, what they gave their children to eat, or the magic spell that they performed for their their neighbours to heal them, or whatever. And from that point, I was just enthralled. I wanted to know why people accused each other of witchcraft, because I didn't believe that, that people could do witchcraft. And then I wanted to know why some people confessed to it. And most of those people, not all, were women, and I wanted to know more about them. It seems only yesterday I had the privilege of interviewing Arthur Miller about the Salem trials, and that's probably the best known publicly. But uh, reading your book, I realised that uh, some of the Scottish witch trials were much more deadly than Salem. That's right. A lot of witch trials are more deadly than Salem. Actually, you know, in some of them, hundreds of people are executed, whereas at Salem, it's only, as it were, 20. 
Of course, each death is very sad, but some of the witch trials were enormous ones. And the Scottish trials were particularly virulent. So there's a particular trial that I write about in my book, um, which started at a place called North Berwick. And here the king got involved in questioning and, and persecuting those accused of witchcraft. So some of it was state-led, some of it was very extensive indeed. Tell me about uh, the North Berwick witch trial, please. Mm, it's a pleasure. So King James, King James VI of Scotland, who later becomes King James I of England as well, had gone to Denmark to fetch home his new queen, Anna of Denmark, as, as she was called when she, she got to Scotland. And he'd been interrupted on that journey, and Anna had been interrupted first on her journey to him by these awful sea storms. And Anna's family back in Denmark had started to believe that these storms were caused by witches. Um, and James came to agree. So when he and Anna get home to Edinburgh and start their married life together, one of the first things this very young king, he's only in his mid-20s, does is to start a witch hunt. And he starts with some people from North Berwick who he thinks are in league with a nobleman in his court, the Earl of Bothwell. And James has been worried about his courtiers for a long time, as well as lots of other people in Scotland, because his throne is, is very insecure. His claim to the throne is quite weak in comparison with some of the other candidates. And so James starts thinking, well, what if these witches are trying to attack me and my, my new queen? What if they want to kill us? What if they want to prevent our conceiving royal heirs and carrying on our royal line. You know, what if this is some sort of demonic conspiracy against me as a good king? And maybe I should do something about it. And so he starts this witch hunt that sweeps across Scotland. Let's talk about the women involved in these trials and uh, what they were forced to confess. Mm. It starts with two women called Annie and Gilly, Agnes Sampson, who was known as Annie for short, and Gilly Duncan, who was a maidservant. Um, Annie was a slightly older woman, a, a widow with young children. But both these women are quite young, so the stereotype of the witch as an old woman isn't always correct. And these women get drawn into the witch hunt because they're both thought to be doing magical practices uh, spells and potentially harming spells in their communities. Gilly's described as somebody who can help people in trouble, so she's probably some sort of magical healer, you know, the kind of person that you go to if you feel sick but you can't afford a doctor and, you know, you want somebody to help you with that, maybe to, to take off a spell that you think another witch has cast on you. She sounds like one of those. And Annie is very similar. And Gilly's employer becomes suspicious of her, and I'm afraid he tortures her. He's not supposed to do so under Scottish law, but he does. And she starts confessing, you know, as she probably would under those circumstances, to being a witch when he asks her if she is one. And she names Annie. And they start talking about all the people that they've supposedly hurt. They tell us quite a lot about their healing spells as well. It seems really likely that these are women who are called in, you know, during childbirth or they're called in if somebody's sick. And they're actually quite helpful people to their communities. So they tell us something about this. But of course, as they're questioned, they start to say more and more about, oh, you know, yes, I did bewitch this child to death. And yes, I did harm my neighbour. And eventually their cases escalated up through the Scottish judicial system and they reach the king 
himself. And so when the king asked them, did you cause those terrible storms that, that kept me from bringing my new bride back across the sea from Denmark? And are you trying to kill me and put the Earl of Bothwell on the throne? Under torture, I'm afraid Annie and Gilly say that they are. And so they start naming other people as part of this supposed witch conspiracy. All torture is by definition appalling, but the tortures they suffered were horrific, weren't they? Mm, it is horrible stuff. I mean, some of them, their heads were bound with rope and the rope was tightened progressively like a, like a particularly terrible headache until they could barely think. Their bodies were shaved all over so that people could look and see if there were demonic marks on them. The devil was thought to mark people who he had recruited as witches by little bite marks or, or little marks where he was supposed to have sucked their blood so they, they were shaved and inspected for this, you know, which is a kind of sexual assault, essentially. And some of the other witches involved were, were tortured by having kind of iron boots put on their legs and wedges hammered into these. It's, it's a horrible, horrible history of, of abuse, and you can understand why people confess. Your scholarship links these cases to uh, Shakespeare's fictional witches in the Scottish play. Yes, it does. So as Annie confesses, one of the things that she says is that she and Gilly and the other witches sailed in sieves to a place where they held a witch's Sabbath. And that's a detail that turns up in um, in Macbeth. You know, one of the witches says that they sailed in sieves to, to meet Macbeth. And there are other details as well. You know, there's the, the basic thing about witches versus kings, which is really strong in Macbeth, and kings who go and consult witches and interact with witches. So Shakespeare actually was actually <laughs> writing Macbeth during the reign of King James and uh, the, uh, the witches' adventures or misadventures would, uh, you know, would morph into the play. Yes, yes, I think so. I think he read this, this account. I think he read this witch trial. It was publicised across Britain and I think he encountered it somewhere. And so those details do get into Macbeth. We're talking about women almost invariably. Was there ever sort of pogroms against warlocks? Not to the same extent. We think from looking across the whole history of witch trials, so sort of 15th to 18th century, basically, across all sorts of jurisdictions, we think about 75% of those accused were women overall, but in some cases it was as high as 90%. So really when witch hunters were looking for witches, they were also usually looking for women as well. So what finally happens to uh, to Gilly and, uh, and Annie? I'm sorry to say they are executed. Um, they're, they're strangled at, at the stake and then their bodies are burned. And one of the other women accused with them is actually burned alive because she's thought to have bewitched her own husband. And that is astonishing. You thought to be a thing called petty treason. So the, the conception of the king versus the witches is a sort of national treason. But if you bewitch your husband, that's supposed to be a petty treason because he's head of the household, right? So you have rebelled against him. You are a kind of traitor. So I'm afraid that they, they are burned and, and they are executed with a lot of other people supposedly involved in this conspiracy. Bubble, bubble, doyle and trouble. I'm having a fascinating conversation with the... Marion Gibson about her new book, Witchcraft, A History in 13 Trials. Marion, your book uh, contains some pretty horrid uh, statistics. I'm shocked to learn that between 1450 and 1750, up to 60,000 people were put to death as a result of witch trials. That is beyond belief. 
Mm, it's a huge number, isn't it? Um, and it was a real, it was an epidemic of accusation. It was, it was a way that communities could dispose of people who they didn't like in their societies, you know, heretics, troublemakers, political rebels and stuff like that. But people honestly believed that those people were witches. It was a, a conspiracy theory, a delusion, something that people came to put a lot more weight on than they really should have done. And it cost the lives of, of certainly tens of thousands of people. It must be very distressing to even research this stuff. It can be sometimes. I mean, not all of the cases end badly. People could be acquitted. People could fight back. And there are some cases of that in the book, which I hope cheers the reader up a little. Um, but, yeah, it is distressing because you come to feel really quite deeply connected with these people. And the fact that they, they can't really tell their own stories is something I wanted to put right in the book. I wanted to give them their stories back by good. How do you do the research, Marion? Court records, observations by others? Yes, that's right. So a lot of this is court records, um, different jurisdictions across Europe and America. But some of it is also, you know, sometimes there were people who sat in the court and wrote down what happened, which was really helpful. And at other times they, you know, they will do that at the time and then they'll go away and they'll write a, a big book called The Demonology, which is a kind of theory of witch hunting. And they'll tell you what happened in that trial, you know, 15, 20 years ago. So you can sometimes find people that way. But also I've looked at the other records of their lives. I've really tried to tell their stories before they were labelled witch. What were they before? So I've looked at records of farming. I've looked at records of, of the manors that used to structure the, the English countryside. I've looked at church records, parish records. I've tried to tell stories of, of them which are about, you know, what happened to their family before, who they were, how they made their living, that sort of thing. And in cases where they escaped, I've tried to tell what happened to them afterwards too. Now, the history of witch hunting has uh, mostly been told through the lens of the witch hunters, but your book shifts the focus onto the women who were persecuted. Tell me about uh, Helena Schubin. So she is an Austrian woman. This is the first chapter in the book, and I wanted to start by surprising the reader. So no spoilers, but this is a case that ends in a way that you don't necessarily expect it to. And Helena, unlike Annie and Gilly and some of the other suspects that we've talked about already, was quite a wealthy woman. She was a merchant's wife. She was somebody who'd had some education. And she had some interesting religious views that make me think that actually she was very much interested in the sort of late Middle Ages heresy that becomes Protestantism later on. She's actually quite critical of the clergy. Um, and this gets her into trouble with a man called Heinrich Kramer, who is a witch hunter. And he comes to her town, Innsbruck in Austria, looking specifically to hold a witch trial. This is, this is his thing. This is what he thinks he's here to do. He's a kind of conspiracy theorist. Um, and he's particularly down on, on women. He thinks women are, are horrible creatures. He's, he's a Dominican monk. He doesn't actually have much experience of women in his everyday life. And he really fears them. So he comes to town looking for witches and looking for women. And what he finds is Helena. And Helena starts, in, instead of just putting up with what he's saying about her, she starts telling people not to go to his sermons. She's worked out this man is bad news. And she confronts him and, and she says things to him like, you know, I'm not a heretic. I'm not a witch. You're more like a heretic than I am because you've come to town spouting all this rubbish about witches and you don't talk about anything other than witches. And yeah, I'm having none of it. And so he decides to prosecute her as a witch. 
but he discovers that he's got himself into slightly deeper water than he might have hoped. So Kramer finds that his uh, usual techniques aren't that effective. Yes, he does. So when he starts to question Heller in court, he goes into her of the intimate details of her sex life and, and he says to her, were you a virgin when you were married? And Helena refuses to answer him. And there's this freeze on, you can feel it, run through the court, even just by looking at the, the original records. There's this oh, gasp. You know, you don't ask people like that. You don't ask middle-class Innsbruck merchants' wives about this stuff. And the court is interrupted by some of the men who are supporting Helena. Of course, not all men were witch hunters. And she has a husband and she has some other people who are on her side and the side of the other women accused with her. And they say, you know, you shouldn't be asking this. And they have the court adjourned and they go out and they find themselves a lawyer. They find themselves a really good lawyer, a really expert one. And when he and the women come back into the courts, he tears into the witch finder, Heinrich, um, and he starts to turn the course of the trial. It's a really fascinating moment when actually a woman has sufficient power to stand up and say, not just I am not a witch, but, you know, my sisters here aren't witches either. Um, let us show you how we're going to fight back against you. Three cheers for Helena. Of course, uh, Kramer's inquisitorial methods were so brutal, they even uh, shocked the authorities. Yes, it did. He, 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 he did overreach himself. Um, one of the things he does as a result of this trial is write a big book called Malleus Maleficarum, The Hammer of Witches. And he's really trying to put across this conspiracy theory that he has that you know, witches are in league with the devil and they're against the church and that most of them are women and women are terrible creatures. And he says women are like children, women are ignorant, women have very little faith. Um, they're sexually voracious, they they prey on men, we must destroy them, etc. And of course, not everybody in the medieval church thinks this way. So he gets himself into a little bit of trouble. But unfortunately, this conspiracy theory grows over time, as they do sometimes, and people pick up on it, and he is able to carry on doing witch trials. Of course, the uh, in the 21st century, misogyny still rages through most of the major religions, but this was... Uh, the peak period, I guess, the pinnacle. Mm, I think so. But we do still see this in contemporary society. One of the things that persuaded me to write the book was the use of witch in political uh, culture. You know, you'll know about this in Australia. People like Julia Gillard were called witch during their time in office. And this quite often happens to women in power. We've seen it with Britain's Prime Minister Liz Truss and we, we've seen it with Hillary Clinton and some of the American female politicians. The word witch is still chucked around quite a bit in, in social, political, religious Well, certainly, certainly the term witch hunt is. And uh, that comes back to the witch hunter. I'm just curious about this. Are these like bounty hunters? Were they, uh, were they paid some sort of uh, fee for finding a witch? Sometimes there were, yeah. So Matthew Hopkins, the, the famous English witch finder general, as he was called, he said he would charge people 20 shillings to go to their village and, and find some witches. You know, he was very keen to say, well, this just covers expenses. That's all it is. But it was a way to make a living in, in some respects. And, of course, people still think they're victims of witch hunts, don't they? Donald Trump is Absolutely. one of the people who well, in Donald's Well, in Donald's case, that's obviously true. Now, the gruesome <laughs> mass executions of the, well, the 15th and 16th century are, thankfully, a thing of the past. But you say that the persecution of people labelled 
as witches continues to this day, particularly in, it's particularly bad in Africa, I understand. That's right, it is. I mean, there are still witch trials happening across the world. They, ha- they happen in Indonesia, they happen in India. But Africa is the example that I've picked at the end of the book. So the book ends really with bringing everything up to date. You know, how is how is the idea of witch hunting and witch trials used in contemporary popular culture in places like North America, but also how people still being accused really of being witches in contemporary Africa. And hundreds of people are being killed. It's it's not usually a state trial. It's not usually that there is still a law against witches, although in some jurisdictions that is the case. But in most cases, people are being killed extrajudicially or they're being exiled from their home villages. They're being driven out because people think that they're witches. So they hold an informal trial um, and they kick somebody out of their village or, or they murder them. And I'm afraid that is still true for hundreds of people across Africa, particularly Southern Africa, today. Now, before I let you go, one uh, final question. I understand that Elizabeth Johnson Jr., the, uh, the last woman to be convicted at Salem, has finally been exonerated. Yeah, there are still um, witchcraft exonerations, witchcraft pardons happening across the world in different places. In in Britain, it's um, there's a campaign for the witches of Scotland who whom we started this discussion to be pardoned too. Tell me about this. I just find this so gobsmacking. <laughs> That's interesting. I mean, to start with, yes, I thought this is a bit odd. You know, as a historian, I tend to think well. Is there really any point in going back to history in this way and saying that people weren't guilty when we kind of know that they weren't? But then I talked to some of the campaigners in the the Scottish cases and they made such a passionate case. Um, And I found it really interesting. They were talking about the way that the idea of which shapes society today and how the term is still being used against women all around the world. And they were arguing, wouldn't it be better to wipe this off our statute books to make it absolutely clear that our legal history in witch trials is a history of mistake? Wouldn't that be a good thing to do for contemporary women and girls? And wouldn't it be good to hear government say, do you know what? We got it wrong. And I found that really interesting, quite persuasive at times. I find it interesting that Scotland's former First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, extended a formal posthumous apology on behalf of the Scottish Government on Women's Day last year. Yes, she did. Yeah, and I thought it was really interesting that it was a female leader doing that. I I assume that her interest in witches was at least partly because she was exactly (laughs) the sort of person, a noisy woman, who might have been accused in the past. This has been quite an extraordinary learning experience for me and, uh, and for the listeners, and you've got to come back soon, not in another 10 years, but soon. Thanks for that, Marion. It's an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Marion Gibson is Professor of Renaissance and Magical Literature at the University of Exeter, and her new book is called Witchcraft, A History in 13 Trials, and it's published by Simon & Schuster. Thanks very much, Marion. Thanks so much. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.